Mass graves offend something deep in the human conscience. I think it's because they fly in the face of our instinct to honor the dead. Years ago, I wrote a book about a war crimes trial in Rwanda, and I'd always assumed that mass graves were the work of perpetrators, a kind of ham-handed effort to cover up unspeakable crimes. But in Ukraine, that's only half the story. Here in Bucha, we have different kind of mass graves. That's Mahilia Skorek-Shaviska, the deputy mayor of Bucha, a leafy bedroom community just 15 miles from Kyiv. And she says that in many of the Russian-occupied cities in Ukraine, local people dug the mass graves themselves to prevent disease or to stop stray dogs from desecrating the bodies. The biggest mass grave near the St. Andrew Church in the center of Bucha. Church of St. Andrew. It's in the center of Bucha. That mass grave was the work of municipal and hospital employees. Bucha was still under Russian occupation when they began to dig. Russians allow them to do temporary cemetery, so they digged big trench and put like, they are saying about 67 bodies. Eventually, there would be hundreds of bodies, which means someone has to put a name to a face and then a body. And it's a huge logistical challenge. So you have to bury them even without documents. And when you did it without the documents, you have to dig them out. You have to exhume a neighbor in order to identify them. In a sense, Bucha's dead were only put in the ground for safekeeping and to preserve evidence. And then there's a second kind of mass grave, the kind that Ukrainians actually stumble upon unexpectedly in the forest or in the outskirts of town. Those mass graves are crime scenes. There was mass graves where Russians executed people, digged the holes in the graves and hide them. Human Rights Watch researchers who traveled to Bucha just days after Russian forces withdrew found evidence of summary executions, signs of torture, indications of forced disappearances, all of which constitute war crimes and potential crimes against humanity, which for the deputy mayor of Bucha is a little surreal. So uh, nobody in Bucha expected uh, to became a, a place of tragedy, of Bucha tragedy. No one would have expected their beautiful little city to be the victim of war crimes. I'm Dina Templerest, and this is Click Here, a podcast about all things cyber and intelligence. Today, one town's effort to identify hundreds of its citizens and give them a proper burial and how a deputy mayor is bringing order to a post-apocalyptic scene. As forensic pathologists, ballistic experts, and international authorities descend on the city of Bucha, Mehelina Skorik-Sheviska is giving them a place to start. What do you think justice will look like? Putin in jail, and every killer in every case. Very simple. Putin in jail, and every killer in every case. She says, very simple, but actually not so simple. Stay with us. If you're looking for a daily guide to cybersecurity news and policy, sign up for the Cyber Daily from Recorded Future News. It serves up the day's most interesting and important cyber stories from our sister publication, The Record, and then aggregates all of the big cyber stories you might have missed from news outlets around the world. 
Just go to therecord.media and click on Cyber Daily to get all you need to know about the world of cybersecurity right in your inbox. Hello, I'm Adam Fleming from the Global Story podcast from the BBC World Service. We are looking at Lena Khan, the face of the US government's battle to regulate big tech. She's already redefined the way we talk about monopolies. Now she's taking on the likes of Amazon and Meta. But who is she and will she win? The Global Story brings you fresh takes and smart perspectives from BBC journalists around the world. Find us wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Can you help me pronounce your name? <laughs> like officially, I'm Helena Skorek-Shkarivska. But uh, for my foreign friends, uh, I usually ask to call me Mika. I think it's easier, no? <laughs> Much easier. <laughs> Thank you. Mika. Before the war, Mika worked for the city of Bucha. She was in charge of digital innovation, which sounds like a sexy tech job, but is more mundane than that. She was getting city data on computers or looking for ways to automate tax collection or parking tickets. Life as she had known it changed on a Thursday, announced by Black Smoke. Mika's first glimpse of what was to come was out near the airport. She was driving to get some gas in her car when she saw Russian aircraft flying low. The Ukrainian helicopters parked on the tarmac were already on fire. I saw helicopters. I have heard um, heavy battles are very close. That was the starting gun, and things got worse from there. Global outrage grew today as more horrific revelations surfaced from Bucha, Ukraine. Who described brutal killings carried out by Russian forces, forces left behind a, quote, scene from a horror movie as they withdrew from areas near Kyiv. To keep track of hundreds of DNA samples, establish cause of death, and gather evidence of possible war crimes, someone has to organize millions of little digital clues. And it fell to Mika, one-time digital innovator for Bucha, to build a system to modernize something she'd never expected to modernize, a way to account for the dead. Our system uh, was not able to manage such a big uh, amount of requests, looking for the bodies or looking for the disappeared people and, of course, to recognize the corpse. The Russians entered Bucha on March 3rd, and when Mika returned in mid-April, it was to an empty city. There were no cars on the road, no people in the streets. Videos posted on social media began to tell the story. This is one post from early April. People are unwittingly documenting crimes, recording the scene through the windshield of a car. There's a deserted street, burned out vehicles, buildings seemingly frozen in mid-collapse, and bodies everywhere. Some appeared to be shot off bicycles. Others were still clutching shopping bags. The whole scene was shrouded in the silence of a city, still in shock. By the time Mika returned and satellite communications and electricity had resumed, she had already mapped out what she would do next. We asked our, our colleagues to provide us some smartphones and one iPad. Smartphones and an iPad were all she needed to start collecting data on the dead. We had lots of imprisoned people. We had lots of killed people. They had police databases, missing persons reports, photographs of the disappeared. The problem was all these little clues were siloed. There was no central repository, no single database to search. Mika came to find out that even Ukraine's morgues were mostly pen and paper operations. Digitizing their records was something they had always intended to do, but never got around to. 
Mika decided it was time to change all that. And we received data from five morgues, and uh, we created the primary database. The primary database ingested everything the five morgues in and around Bucha knew about the 400 bodies they had examined, but didn't have room to keep. Not just sex and approximate age and hair color, but a collection of details that might help families find their loved ones. Tattoos, birthmarks, scars. Mika created a second database that cataloged who went into the mass grave and where. Then she cross-referenced the information, so when families arrived with details about their missing relatives, Mika knew exactly where to look. Her system allowed families to honor the dead, to hold real funerals and proper burials. But knowing precisely what happened to each of these people before they came to the mass graves of Bucha, Mika says it'll take a while. I think that in one year, in two years, maybe in three years' time, we will have the not only the names and the data from the morgue, but also the results of the investigations. It will be a painstaking forensic endeavor that will unfold in slow, incremental steps. So it's a big tragedy for Ukrainian families to have this situation. But the database helps anchor things. It offers some semblance of order and closure. We are still uh, helping families to recognize their killed relatives. When we come back, knitting millions of digital clues together to hold the guilty accountable. There's no question that digital memes and satellite imagery, uh, often with other documentary information or witness testimony, really, I think, makes a number of these situations uh, much, much easier to prove. Stay with us. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Building a, a war crimes case is quite different than building a, a normal, you know, violent crime case. That's Ambassador Stephen Rapp. I first met him nearly 20 years ago when he was the chief prosecutor of a Rwandan war crimes trial. In the intervening years, he's been involved in war crimes prosecutions in Sierra Leone and Syria, and then became ambassador-at-large focused on war crimes at the State Department. So he is intimately familiar with what it takes to build these kinds of cases. Violent crimes uh, may involve some planning, but they're over and done with. They're like a bank robbery in a, in, in a few minutes. And uh, you can control the crime scene, and you can take advantage of video cameras. In Bucha, crimes were committed over 32 days, all over the city. And while social media posts and CCTV and secret iPhone videos recorded by witnesses can all help connect perpetrators to the crime, finding those witnesses in a city of 30,000 at a time of war so they can testify at a trial many years later— that only begins to explain why prosecuting war crimes is so complicated. Rapp says the bodies themselves provide clues as to what happened. 
you have, uh, you know, mass graves with their bodies left on the street for, for three or four weeks uh, with hands tied behind their back, with bullets in the back of heads. Uh, those are situations in which there are war crimes without question. But they can't tell the whole story. Then the issue becomes who committed those crimes? Who's really responsible? Were they rogue units, uh, scared young soldiers who just acted out uh, their own impulses? Or was that part of a strategy in which uh, the military command really looked to intimidate the population? Before 2014, answering those kinds of questions was nearly impossible. Then two things happened. Surveillance went from something only governments had to becoming open source. And then a collective of citizen investigative journalists working for an organization called Bellingcat found a game-changing way to leverage digital information. I'd like to, I'd like to talk about uh, a very new way of investigating. That's from a documentary about Bellingcat called Truth in a Post-Truth World. The new way of investigating is all about following digital trails and leveraging information that is just out there for the taking if you know where to look. Like a time machine, we can go back to the day of the MH17 shootdown on Google Earth. Bellingcat has been behind a number of remarkable investigations, but the one that put it on the map was the downing of Malaysia Airlines flight MH17, which just disappeared from the radar over Ukrainian airspace in 2014. Bellingcat made clear that there was a lot to discover with just a computer, a keyboard, and the will to find the truth. American officials believe that the Boeing 777 was brought down by a surface-to-air missile. Ukraine's government and rebel forces in the east accusing... All 298 people aboard were killed. Bellingcat began to look through social media posts around eastern Ukraine, the area where the airplane went down. They managed to uncover the actual video of the Russian Buk surface-to-air missile launcher, not just coming into Ukraine shortly before the crash, but actually heading back to Russia the very next day, carrying just three missiles instead of four. Then Dutch investigators were able to find intercepted calls from that same period. And what they heard was the confusion after rebels realized that they may have just downed a commercial plane and arguments about how to whisk the missile launcher back to Russia. In the end, four men, three Russians and a Ukrainian, were charged for the murder of all 298 people in absentia. The story would have had a satisfying ending, but for one thing. Eight years later, there's still no verdict in the case. Uh, And so it can take a very long time. Ambassador Rapp says war crimes are really committed by organizations, not individuals. And then you have to figure out how to attribute criminal responsibility uh, across that organization and and prove, ideally, you know, the responsibility of people who really made the crime happen. People up the chain. People like Russian President Vladimir Putin. People who ordered the bombardment of civilian targets in Ukraine. People who told soldiers to show no mercy to the residents of occupied cities. Of course, it's not an easy way to prove the, this uh, system of command responsibility from the highest level. That's the Prosecutor General of Ukraine, Andrei Kostin, from a recent appearance on CBS's Face the Nation. We know who is responsible mm-hmm. for it, because the crime of aggression is the mother of all of these crimes, of war crimes, genocide, because without aggression, there will be no other war crimes. And for that reason, for the crime of aggression, the highest politically and military leadership 
should be prosecuted and should be punished. Ambassador Rapp is advising the Ukraine government on how it might organize those trials. He says they need to be structured and systematic to bring speedier justice. In the meantime, he says Putin isn't doing himself any favors. By not having court-martials or investigations when news of fresh atrocities surface, he makes it easier to follow them up the chain. Indeed, uh, Putin giving awards uh, uh, to, to at least one of the major units involved there as sort of heroes of, uh, and defenders of, uh, of the fatherland, you know, that, uh, that you can, in fact, impute responsibility all the way up to him, potentially. Which is what Mika wants, Putin behind bars. She says everyone who might have been responsible for what happened in Bucha needs to be held to account. In the meantime, it's hard to shake the feeling that Bucha is prelude. Last week, Putin announced that he was calling up some 300,000 military reservists to join the fight. And he's preparing to declare some enclaves in eastern and southern Ukraine as part of Russia. Mika, for her part, says while she's worried about what Putin might do next, her life in Bucha has to go on. So she's making those accommodations you have to make when you're at war. She carries her smartphone everywhere now because Bucha has instituted a new missile warning system. It sounds like one of those amber alerts we get on our phones here. So that's the signal that you should hide from another possible attack. My little son, he's seven years old. He's all the time talking about killing the Putin, about uh, Russians as enemies. They, he's, singing. he's back in school, but... Uh, sometimes he has to spend time in the basement because of rocket attack warning. Which, she said, is a new reality she's having to get used to. The position that every minute you have to stop what are you doing and hide from the air attack. And it wears on her. And she sees its effects on her son. He builds pillow forts to protect them both now and has taken to singing Ukrainian patriotic songs. Sometimes they sing them together. Neither the glory nor the will of Ukraine has died yet, they sing. We will give body and soul for our freedom. This is Click Here. Cybersecurity and high-stakes chess have a lot in common. In both cases, you have to outsmart an opponent. You have to leverage weaknesses in a strategic way. And you have to think two steps ahead of the person on the other side. So we couldn't help but notice a recent dust-up in the world of elite chess. It involved a five-time world chess champion, a cocky American teenager, and allegations of cheating. Our producer, Will Jarvis, has the story. So there are these things called chess engines. They're computer programs that analyze a chess game and then generate the strongest possible moves. They can help players develop better openings or learn how to exploit their opponent's weaknesses. The most powerful of the publicly available chess engines is a program called Stockfish. Chess friends, have you ever wondered if a stockfish is a boy or a girl? I am neither boy nor girl, 
I am a robot with some consciousness. That's its voice on YouTube. And these engines are built not just to beat humans at chess, but actually destroy them. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't quite say that it's like a car driving, you know, compared to a person running, but it's not that far off. That's Grandmaster Susan Polgar, a former world champion. And we were talking about chess engines because of this crazy thing that happened earlier this month at a tournament in St. Louis called the Sinkfield Cup. A3, G3, Bishop, G2. Let me set the scene. Magnus Carlsen, 31, and American Hans Niemann, who's just 19, were facing off. Magnus Carlsen is the biggest name in chess since Bobby Fischer, the kind of guy who actually has a chess engine modeled after his game. It's called Sessi. Neiman, for his part, looks 19. Shaggy hair, super confident. The game begins. With the move knight c3, yeah. no Catalans and an invitation, yeah. let's dance in a nimzo. A Eventually, everyone is surprised to see the reigning world champion down to just his king and a bishop. Magnus keeps staring at the board. Seeing no way out, he resigns. Yeah. And there, there we have it, handshake. Wow, what a result. What wow. a result, guys. Truly. Wow. I can just imagine. That's what passes for gobsmacked in the chess world. And shortly after, Magnus quit the whole tournament. This week, he outright accused Hans of cheating, though he doesn't say how. Truth be told, tongues have been wagging ever since the upset. Some said the young American already knew Magnus's opening moves. Others said Hans was using a chess engine, which is what prompted my call to Grandmaster Polgar. She was amazed by how out of control it all got. And you know, it just became a snowball rolling, you know. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to what is most likely the biggest chess scandal in history. Does body language prove that Hans Niemann cheated to beat the reigning chess champion? There, there's nothing, like nothing is proven, but there is a lot of suspicion. There is a lot of suspicion. The next day, the tournament had some pretty tight security measures. On, as we see, Hans getting nicely wanded. This guard gave him more than the once over. It was more like a second screening from the TSA. Of course, the one thing that was missing from all this was any evidence that Hans Niemann actually cheated. I mean, how would you do that if you're sitting across the board from your opponent? Yeah, it, uh, it sadly does happen time to time. Like back in 2010 at the Chess Olympiad. In that case, it was a three-man operation. The first guy was watching the tournament somewhere else, plugging moves into a chess engine. The second guy was in the room getting the engine's suggested moves. And then that person would signal to the actual player. The actual player, the third guy. He could interpret the suggested move by where in the room the second guy was standing. But I wanted to talk to someone with a little more first-hand chess cheating knowledge. So I went to this guy. I'd, I'd go with amateur. I definitely wouldn't call myself a good chess player. That's James Stanley. I live in the United Kingdom and I'm a computer programmer. He also runs a blog. And about a month before the scandal broke at the Sinkfield Cup, James laid out how someone might be able to cheat at in-person chess, not with three people, but solo. His story starts with a pub, a few pints, and his chessboard. James sits down to play a friend, but... There's a computer in my pocket. The computer is running Stockfish. Yes, that Stockfish, the chess engine. Connected to the computer is some cables that run down my trouser legs. So there's a hole in the inside of my cargo pocket. Uh, the cables run through the hole, down the trouser legs, into these 3D printed inserts that go in my shoes. Stay with me here. Cables running into inserts in his shoes. Those inserts have buttons for his toes. Buttons that would essentially allow him to tap the opponent's chess moves 
Morse code style and send them to the computer, loaded up with Stockfish in his pocket. Stockfish would work out what response it wants to play and the computer would then send the vibrations to my feet down the cables. He interprets the vibrations, plays the suggested move. And then we just repeat every turn. James calls it Sockfish. Sock, like for your feet. And his friend, he claims, had no idea. After I played my friend in the pub, I told him I was planning to use the shoes to find a player who's plausibly good enough to win the World Championship, have him use the shoes, win the World Championship, win the money, as a joke, obviously. So it's quite funny to me that there's a controversy at the Sinkfield Cup where someone's accused of having cheated. James says there's outside interest in his invention, but like a great chess player, or dare I say it, cybersecurity professional, he's thinking a few steps ahead. One person emailed me trying to buy the shoes. I worked out that there isn't a price that would be worth me selling them and that would also be worth paying by someone who isn't planning to use it to defraud a major tournament. So I can't tell them. Hans Niemann, by the way, would finish sixth in the Sinkfield Cup. I'm Will Jarvis, and this is Click Here. And here are some of the big cyber and intelligence headlines from the past week. The cybersecurity firm Checkpoint has discovered a seven-year-old campaign using Android-based malware targeting the Uyghur community both inside and outside of China. They said the scale and persistence of the campaign is remarkable. A spyware loaded on the phone called Mobile Order was able to do call and surround recording, real-time geolocation, and even had the ability to place calls and send SMS messages from the victim's phone. Checkpoint said Scarlet Mimic is thought to be behind the campaign. The group hasn't been directly linked to the Chinese government, but its motivations appear to overlap with Beijing's. Officials in Iran appear to be limiting access to mobile networks and communication platforms like Instagram as protests continue over the alleged police killing of a 22-year-old woman named Masa Amini. Several internet access watchdogs reported nationwide outages for people using MCI, that's Iran's leading mobile operator, and there's been spotty coverage among other smaller carriers. The director of NetBlock's Alp Toker, which tracks this sort of thing, told the record that they'd seen a rapid escalation of internet restrictions as unrest grew over the past week in the wake of Amini's death. She's alleged to have died at the hands of police after they arrested her for not wearing her headscarf properly. And finally, the U.S. Department of Treasury said it is carving out exemptions from its Iran sanctions regime for technology companies providing internet access during the protests. The sanctions issued by the U.S. government against Iran make it difficult for U.S. businesses to operate in the country. But in the wake of Iran's decision to pull the plug on part of its network, the Treasury Department issued a new license allowing technology companies to offer the Iranian people more options. It definitely came too late, but obviously better late than never. This is Masa Ali Mardani, a senior Iran researcher at Article 19 of Freedom of Expression Group. It will have some positive impact, obviously, but I can't deny that the harm has been done in the past few years by the fact that this license was not given. 
She says leaders of the regime use the sanctions as cover to build a network that they control, and that's showing up in the latest protests as they beef up surveillance. Click Here is a production of The Record by Recorded Future. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, your host, writer, and executive producer. Sean Powers is our senior producer and marketing director, and Will Jarvis is our producer and helps with the writing. Karen Duffin and Lou Olkowski are our editors, Darren Ancrum is our fact-checker, and Ben Levingston composes our original music, and our other music is from Blue Dot Sessions. Kendra Hanna is our intern. And we want to hear from you. Please leave us a review and rating wherever you get your podcasts, and you can connect with us at clickhereshow.com. We'll be back on Tuesday. Looking for more of the cybersecurity and intelligence coverage you get on Click Here? Then check out our sister publication, The Record, from Recorded Future News. You'll get breaking cyber news from reporters in New York, Washington, London, and Kiev, among others. And you'll see for yourself why it attracts hundreds of thousands of page views every month. Just go to the record.media.